For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a closer look at Tucson Mayor Rothschild's State of the City address. Meet Penelope Starr, who shares her love for community storytelling in a new book. Chris DeShiel reviews two films featured in next week's Tucson Cine Mexico Film Festival. And I'll speak with the director of Cine Mexico's headlining documentary, Beas de Noche. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Tucson Mayor Jonathan Rothschild gave his annual State of the City address at the Marriott Star Pass on Thursday. Joining me now for some analysis of what was said is Andrea Kelly, the host of Arizona Public Media's Metro Week. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. What would you say was the focus of Mayor Rothschild's speech? Well, the overall theme was partnerships. He spent most of the speech probably 80% or so, talking about the partnerships the city has already made with the business community, nonprofits, other governments, talking about the city's track record in being a good partner. And essentially, all of that was a buildup to pitching to the May sales tax election that the city has on the ballot, where it's asking voters to approve a half-cent sales tax increase. And so that narrative of being a good partner was for him to say the city will continue to be a good partner and will be will manage that money well. Where is that money expected to go, assuming that the sales tax passes? If voters approve the tax, it will go to road repair and police and fire equipment and facilities. So it won't go to the general budget for police and fire or streets, but specifically to road projects, repairing the streets, and then buying things like bulletproof vests for police, upgrading fire stations, things like that. And it's a five-year tax. If voters approve it, it will only last five years. Has there been any voice of opposition towards the sales tax? And if so, where's it coming from? I haven't seen any formally organized opponents at this point. Typically, those will trickle their way up to the surface as the sales tax election cycle kind of continues. So when people get their ballots in the mail in April, this is an all-mail election, they'll all come through the mail, there might be some opposition that, that appears at that point. For now, all I've seen is the Tucson Bus Riders Union having some um, outspoken thoughts about it because they wish that some of the money that's going to streets and road repair would also go to the transit system. And that's not in the plan. So they're disappointed with that. Now, I heard you say bus riders union, not the drivers. That's right, Mark. So the SunTran drivers actually have an employment union. That's not what I'm talking about here. The Tucson Bus Riders Union is essentially a group of riders who work to lobby for the interests of riders at city council. So they, you know, they push for lower fares, uh, more options, more routes, things that are in the interest of people who ride the bus. Was there anything in Mayor Rothschild's speech that referred to the future of downtown development? Yes. Going back to that idea of partnerships, he talked about how the city has been a good partner with some of the business owners downtown in helping them find some financial incentives to develop the empty spaces, put up new buildings, revitalize some of the old buildings. So that that references the past. But in an interview I did with him about his speech, he expanded on that and said, that he thinks downtown is about halfway developed. So there's about 50% more development to happen downtown. 
And uh, the city's hoping to be able to continue to offer financial incentives for that and just keep that interest high. And when will our audience be able to hear or see the interview that you conducted with Mayor Rothschild? That interview will air on our TV show, Metro Week, which airs on the local PBS channel 6, Friday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30. And all the news is available at news.azpm.org. Thank you for your time. You're welcome, Mark. Standing alone in front of a crowd of people and sharing an unscripted personal story isn't everyone's idea of fun. But 13 years ago, Tucsonan Penelope Starr began daring herself and encouraging others to do just that. Starr is the founder of Odyssey Storytelling, which now offers monthly shows where people of all stripes overcome their fear of public speaking or embrace their inner ham and open up about real-life experiences. The results are often laughter, tears, and an overwhelming sense of community. Penelope Starr has just written a book to share what she's learned and to encourage others to give storytelling a try. I asked her to join me in the studio for a conversation. People are expressing themselves in a lot of different ways. For instance, Twitter makes it easy for people to fire off short personal comments about things. What's the significant difference when we talk about the kind of oral storytelling that you encourage with Odyssey? Well, we give people 10 minutes. And for some people, 10 minutes is an eternity. And some people, 10 minutes just goes by in a whiz. But it's enough time to develop a story. A story can have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and most importantly, can have a point. And every month we have a theme. So we gather people together to explore different aspects of that theme. It's much more engaging to the audience, I think. And the people in the audience are part of the whole experience. They have reactions. They they talk about the stories afterwards. Um, they can't fire back a, their own tweets. True. Yeah. How has your understanding and your appreciation for storytelling developed since the beginning? Well, when I first started, I started for fun. And I didn't know the effect that it was going to have on the people in the community and the storytellers. I didn't know how important it would be to get diverse people together to share their stories. I didn't understand that people's hearts and minds would be changed by this very simple act of a person, a microphone, a stool, a stage, and an audience. What made you decide to take what you have learned and seen over the years and try to put it on the page in this new book? Well, I'm a very enthusiastic story listener. And I was so impressed by the bravery of the people who got up on stage to tell their stories and and the impact that it has on bringing people together and creating connections, um, dispelling prejudice. There's a whole list of benefits that a community can get from having a community storytelling event. My inspiration was to try to encourage and help other 
communities do this for themselves. So that's why one of the things I say about the book is it's a how-to, because I kind of have a step-by-step, this is what I did, this was my pitfalls, this is how I recovered, Um, a list of benefits, and then I have resources in the book, forms, things that people don't have to create themselves. When people hear about Odyssey storytelling, I think many of them are tempted, but then they think, oh, but I, I don't really have a story or I don't really know how to coagulate it into something that I could share with others. So what's your advice to people who are intrigued by the idea but aren't quite ready to take the plunge? Well, first of all, come to a show and watch the variety of stories and storytellers because some people are polished and some people are less polished. And all of it is is fine. All of it's great. That's what we want. We want diversity and we want to have variety in our shows. Um, and then if you're really intrigued and you want to tell a story, go to our website, see what the themes are that are coming up and um, send us a message and say, this is the show I'm interested in and this is the kind of story I'd like to tell. And then a curator will contact you and um, invite you to the rehearsal. And the rehearsal is a time that you can shape your story, you can get feedback, you can give feedback, and most people gain a lot of confidence from that. And the curators are always available for one-on-one if necessary. The night of the show, everybody's so supportive. The audience is so loving and supportive, and they, they're just thrilled that people choose to do this, and they are very respectful. And I know most people, when they get off the stage, even if they're really nervous when they get on there, they're really high from excitement when they get off the stage. How did the process feel for you to take what you'd learned and what you'd seen over these years and to put it in the book? Um, Was it easy to write this? The ideas were there, but I wasn't a writer. I had always written in a journal or something like that, but I never had the idea of writing and showing anybody what I wrote. But I was determined to do it, just like I was determined to start Odyssey Storytelling. I didn't know what I was doing when I started, and I muddled along, and I did the same thing with this book. I took some classes at Pima Community College. I was in a writing group. I got lots of support from people and encouragement and critiques that were very, very helpful. And one of the things that I was encouraged to do was to put my story in the book. My thought at first was, this is just about the storytelling, but it really wasn't because my story is part of the story, how I grew it, how I learned about it, and um, even making fun of some of the things that I did wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, tell us the name of the book and uh, a little bit about the event that you have coming up to celebrate its release. The name of the book is The Radical Act of Community Storytelling, Empowering Voices in Uncensored Events. And we have a fundraiser coming up. It's happening on Friday, March 24th from 5 to 8 p.m. at the YWCA on Bonita. And we're going to have refreshments. Uh, David Fitzsimmons is going to be our MC. I'm going to read from my book, and we're going to have three storytellers. And we hope to raise some money to support Odyssey Storytelling so that we can keep bringing stories to Tucson. My guest was Odyssey Storytelling founder Penelope Starr. The theme for the next Odyssey Performance Night is Awkward, 
It's happening Thursday, April 6th at 7 p.m. at the Screening Room in downtown Tucson. Each year, film lovers in southern Arizona have a rare opportunity to experience some of the best that the Mexican film industry has to offer. Here's essayist Chris DeShiel with an appreciation of the Hanson Film Institute's upcoming Tucson Cine Mexico. Tucson has the privilege of hosting the longest-running festival of contemporary Mexican film in the United States. Cine Mexico is now celebrating its 14th year, The 2017 edition is happening March 22nd through March 26th, and admission, as always, is free. My experience has been that even though Mexico is our close neighbor, awareness of the rich Mexican film tradition is still rare in the U.S. The Cine Mexico Festival is a great way to remedy that problem. I had the opportunity to see two of this year's offerings prior to the festival, and they are both amazing. On Friday evening, they're showing A Monster with a Thousand Heads, written by Laura Santullo and directed by Rodrigo Pla. It's not what it sounds like. The Thousand-Headed Monster is actually a metaphor for the Mexican health care and health insurance systems, a very pertinent topic in other countries as well as here. Yana Rawi, in a strong performance anchoring the film, plays Sonia, whose husband has cancer. She knows what medicine he needs to have in order to live, but their insurance refuses to approve the drug for him. And when she visits the medical center to ask for help, they brush her off, with the doctor in charge of her husband's case actively avoiding her. So, accompanied by her teenage son, Dario, she follows the doctor to his home. And she has a gun. As you might expect, things get out of hand. Yes, this is a thriller, expertly paced, with occasional flashes of humor, yet never letting its genre elements outweigh the serious social implications of the drama. For Sonia, this is a life-and-death matter, and caution is thrown to the winds in order to save her husband. Santuya's script lets the action speak for itself without any preaching or overt messages. Most of us can relate to the mounting frustration of dealing with an unresponsive bureaucracy. And this only adds to the impact of this taut, suspenseful, and ultimately moving film. Saturday's screening is Bleak Street, the latest work by one of the masters of Mexican film, Arturo Ripstein. The story concerns the poorest of the poor in the slums of Mexico City. We first encounter two professional wrestlers, twin brothers, little people who perform as sidekicks in the ring to two regular-sized wrestlers. In a bizarre, surrealistic touch, the brothers choose to keep their masks on at all times throughout the day. With their earnings, they help support their indigent parents. Eventually, we meet the story's two main characters, Adela and Dora, aging prostitutes and beggars, played by Patricia Ye Spindola and Nora Velasquez. In between turning tricks, Adela wheels an infirm old lady along the streets in a cart. It's the woman who first taught her the begging trade, now barely able to function. Meanwhile, Dora discovers that her deadbeat husband is homosexual, and she struggles with despair about the emptiness of her life. At some point, the story of the two prostitutes will intersect with that of the little wrestlers. Now, I try not to use the word masterpiece very often, but this picture deserves that title. 
shot in stunning black and white and revealing a spectral night world in which the huge slum neighborhood appears as a hellish labyrinth within a cavern of shadows. Bleak Street manages to be both contemporary and eerily timeless. Credit should also go to Ripstein's wife and frequent collaborator, Paz Alicia Garcia Diego, whose screenplay is devastating in its irony, horror, black humor, and hard-won compassion. We are witnessing a degraded and predatory world here, but the film never looks down on those people or views them as less than human. I just had to shake my head in awe at Bleak Street, a great work of art towering over the landscape of today's cinema. Most of the festival's movies are showing at the Harkins Theater. On Thursday at the Fox, there's a screening of a rare silent Mexican film from 1919 called The Gray Automobile, with live musical accompaniment by Troker, a jazz rock ensemble from Guadalajara. Cine Mexico 2017 promises to be very special. For more details, go to TucsonCineMexico.org. This is Krista Scheel for Arizona Spotlight. What happens after stardom ends? That question is the starting point for the documentary Bayas de Noche, or Beauties of the Night, the film chosen to headline next week's Cine Mexico Festival. It follows the lives of five Mexican women who were once well-known performers and sex symbols, singing, dancing, and acting on stage and screen during the 1970s and early 80s. About eight years ago, director Maria Jose Cuevas began building friendships with these women and filming scenes of their everyday lives. The resulting film paints an unforgettable portrait of how each deals with aging, health, romance, self-esteem, and the ever-present nostalgia for their long-faded stardom. Maria Jose Cuevas will visit Tucson to present the film, and I spoke with her from her home in Mexico City using Skype. Well, the thing is that my father is a famous artist in Mexico City. And when I was a little girl, my father was fascinated by popular culture. And he used to go to cabarets and sometimes he took me alone. So the thing is that the vedettes, there were like this very familiar presence in my childhood. So it's more like my childhood memories. And then 10 years ago, I met Princess Yamal one day and she called me and she said, come over to my place. I have a surprise for you. And the surprise was that she was waiting for me all dressed up as a vedette. And I was there at her home sitting in her couch and she started dancing all of a sudden. So that was when I I knew I wanted to do this documentary because I was meeting this woman who told me it's been 40 years since I don't wear this dress and I don't dance. I don't know why I wanted to give you this gift. It's almost like they're still living that life. It seems to be so important to them to still be seen as beautiful and to be seen as graceful and elegant. Did you find that to some extent these women have never quite moved on from being the centers of attention that they were? There's a very thin line between the human being or the woman and the character, no? 
Yes, I see what you mean. They are always performing with or without a camera. It's like the character is still with them. One of the women makes the comment that she remembers what it was like to be one pair of eyes looking out at a million pairs of eyes looking back <laughs> at her. And she talks about, can you imagine how much energy that that took? And it's it's clear that she can taste it, you know, while she's talking about it, that she remembers that that energetic connection between herself and the audience. Yes, the thing I think what it's important is that even if they are still pretending to be who they were, no, or pretending to play the character, they also have the power to reinvent themselves, no, to move on. Now with the with this film, they are again in the spotlight, and they love to go and to present the film and feel the applause, no? everybody clapping and cheering. So, yes, I don't know how to explain. I think you, I think you have. I think we understand each other because that's how I felt watching the film. I thought that the film started very broadly. And at first I was like, what is this film really about? Soon you begin to learn details of these women's lives. You begin to contrast the differences between them and by the end, there are revelations that no one could expect, things about their past that suddenly come to light, and also uh, one of the women dealing with a cancer diagnosis and, and facing a, a great health crisis. And these stories help to propel you through the end of the film. It's, it's quite dramatic, the change that occurs. What kind of choices did you make as a filmmaker in terms of deciding what to document and what not to document in your film? Okay, yes. Well, it took me eight years uh, of shooting this film. So, of course, when I first met them, we didn't know each other, no? And I just went to their places, interviewed them, as you can see in the film. There were no trust between me and them. But after, I don't know, a while, we started becoming friends. And then I started discovering those amazing women who wanted to to be listened, no, and to have a friend. You can see it in the field. It's like my own process. At first, I, it was not so deep. Mm-hmm. Then I went deeper and deeper and deeper. And now they are like my best friends. <laughs> <laughs> so in front of my eyes, they start to reinvent themselves. When I met them, they were like very depressed. They were turning 60 and they were very depressed. And all of a sudden, they found that courage and that that strength to keep going. There's a wonderful quote in the film. I believe it's Princess Yamal who says, no one loves people who are defeated. And it, Mm -hmm. it speaks to her desire to hold her chin up to to act like uh, the the troubles that she's facing as she enters her sixties aren't there to still um, you know to represent a, a face to the world, and her story is particularly interesting because of a certain scandal that she was involved with. How she, painful was that to uh, reconnect with that time? Was she able to? I mean, you see some stress in the film when she's confronting those photographs, but tell me about talking to Princess Yamal about her fall from grace. Everybody knows 
about her being in jail. And she doesn't talk too much about it. When I talk to her in the in the film, I ask her if she saw herself in those photographs behind bars. And she said, no, I didn't. I was in jail, so I didn't see any newspaper, anything. So I told her, for me, it was very shocking to see you in the newspaper when I did all my research behind bars. So she said, oh, please, please, I want to see myself behind bars. She spent three years in jail. I think each of them had this breaking point in their lives. Uh, Well, growing up was a breaking point for all of them. But I think for Princess Yamal, she's the strongest one. Well, she's the one I love the most. <laughs> I, for me, it's very difficult to speak in English. I don't know what to do. You're doing an excellent job. You really are. I, I'm following every word, no problem. I think what makes these characters so endearing and interesting is the passage of time. That's what it's about, the lesson they have learned from life. One more question for you, and that is... Um, now that the film is being shown, what kind of feedback have you heard from the five women who were central to the film? Have they all been pleased with how they were portrayed? They are used to be treated so badly. There's also a very mean tabloid. They treat them bad because they have plastic surgery, so they they are uh, they are not in the spotlight anymore, or one that lives with 49 dogs. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of prejudices around mm-hmm. them. So I think it's the first time that someone is with them with a loving camera and with a camera who's a friend, and they can feel that. I think it's the first time they see themselves in a big screen, as they are. So they, they are really, really happy because now people here in Mexico are becoming to respect them because of the film, because it's the first time that you see them as human beings. Director Maria Jose Cuevas will kick off Cine Mexico 2017 next Wednesday, March 22nd at 6 p.m. at the Tucson Museum of Art. She'll give an artist's talk called Heroines of Sin and Pleasure. Cuevas will also do Q&A at the Arizona premiere of Bellas de Noche on Friday, March 24th at 6.30 p.m. at the Harkins Spectrum 18 Theater. Admission is free to all Cine Mexico events, but space is limited. The Hansen Film Institute provides information and a complete schedule at TucsonCineMexico.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.